Um, this morning, I am not preaching. Justin Vuktaveen is preaching, and I am excited about that. This fall, we had a, a preaching lab with a dozen people from our congregation that met in this room, and each one preached two sermons over the course of the fall to the rest of the group, and then we interrogated them after and gave them all kinds of feedback, and it was awesome. And uh, Justin is one of uh, the people that was, were in uh, the preaching lab. He's, he's from our uh, promontory campus, has preached there already. But I'm excited to have him preach here this morning. So why don't you come up, uh, Justin, as he does. Uh, we've had to raise the cameras uh, higher. And this, I've never seen a stand so high from a preacher. So that's exciting. Uh, but uh, I want you to know a couple of things. Um, we just really believe in equipping the saints for the work of ministry, believing in a church of over a thousand people that there's more than one guy who is gifted and able to preach. We just believe that. We know that to be true. So we're excited to find preachers, raise up preachers. And you only get better at a certain point. Uh, you only get better at preaching uh, by preaching. So that's one of those things, right? So uh, I recognize that the preacher has a task of blessing and serving the congregation. Spend time in the word as you have uh, in order to mine it so that it can be preached to serve you, to bless you, encourage you. Uh, but there's also a role the congregation play for the preacher. There is, a, there is a way that the congregation can serve the preacher. And I would like to ask that of you this morning. You can bless, you can encourage, you can be patient, and you can listen and recognize that any, by any person proclaiming God's word truthfully, there is something to hear from God, to learn. And so I, I ask that you would give uh, ears to God's word this morning through the preaching of Justin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, uh, Paul, the, uh, the apostle, had this protege named Timothy who was this young pastor. And 2 Timothy is the last thing that Paul wrote that's uh, recorded in the scriptures. And so here's, here's the parting words that Paul has to the young pastor, Timothy. He says, 2 Timothy 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, that's what we want to accomplish here. We want to uh, see saints equipped for every task, including the preaching of the word. So would you join me in praying for Justin? We'll uh, have our ushers come forward and uh, we'll pray. Then we'll hear from God's word. Jesus, we thank you that uh, recorded in the scriptures is your word to us. What Paul proclaimed to others uh, and told to uh, entrust to faithful preachers, Lord, we can glean from your word and we can trust that you want to use us, Lord, to preach your truth. And I thank you for Justin, for the gifts that you've put in him that were so evident to see this fall. And I thank you for his courage uh, to, to stand in front of his, his own church family and um, grow in this gift. God, thank you that you want to teach us this morning from the word. I pray that you would use Justin, that um, your word would go out with power and your spirit would impress it on our hearts that uh, we wouldn't get glory, that you'd get glory, that the light wouldn't shine on the preacher. It would be uh, on the subject, which is Jesus. God, too, uh, we're, we're heavy hearted this morning because of the tragedy that happened in the middle of our country. Our, our hearts are heavy for a small community in Saskatchewan, Lord, that, that lost 
uh, their hockey, a good portion of their hockey team. Lord, we pray for the small community of Humboldt this morning uh, that are mourning and for the families and friends from across, especially Western Canada, who had loved ones lost in the tragic bus accident. Lord, I pray that your comfort and peace would come in the midst of things we don't get, we don't understand it. Why do these things happen? But Lord, we trust again that this is not all there is, that hope is assured because you rose, because you offer us eternal life. Lord, I just pray your mercy on the brokenhearted today. And as we give, Lord, it's, it's, it's the continuation of our worship. Yes, we sing. Yes, we sit under your word. But we also give to you, God. It's that costly worship. We give to you as worship. And we also recognize that you use our giving to a common purpose we have, that your name would be proclaimed in this region and across the world. And so we give generously. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me in, in welcoming Justin? Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, as Matt said, my name is Justin. Uh, my wife and I have been coming to Central for probably about a year now. And you might recognize me because I got baptized last week and I was on the little video thing. Now, if you're considering baptism or ministry partnership, don't be alarmed. This isn't one of the requirements. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. Um, but you might be wondering, what's some guy who's only been here for a year and who only got baptized last week is doing up here preaching today? So let me tell you a little bit about myself, a little bit about my story and how I came to be right here. I've uh, lived in Chilliwack pretty much my whole life. I've grown up in the valley. I don't even smell cow manure anymore unless it's really freshly spread and I drive right past it. Then I smell a little bit. Um, I, uh, after I graduated from high school, I went to this uh, little, small little Christian university in the middle of the state of Iowa. It's in the prairies. You probably can't find it on a map. I can barely find it on a map, and I went there. Um, and I studied engineering there for a year. And if you know anything about engineering, it's really hard. And it taught me to pray. It drove me to my knees. And so after that, I just went straight to the source and studied theology for the last three years of my degree. And after I graduated, I took a part-time position at a small church in Ontario in a really small little town. And once my time there was up, I eventually found my way home here to Chilliwack, and I have been framing, building houses here ever since. I met and married my wife in 2016, and we chose Central to be our church home as once we kind of heard about the Promontory Church plant, uh, we got involved with that. And then uh, last fall, I had the opportunity to be in the preaching lab, as we just heard about, and uh, kind of one thing led to another, and yeah, I guess now I'm here. Um, this past year has been just such a year of blessing uh, for me, for my wife. Uh, we've been getting involved with this promontory launch, um, getting involved with this preaching lab, and ultimately standing up here preaching to you today. And the Lord's guiding has been so evident, and this church has been a huge part of that. So that's how I got here. The Lord has led me here. And there were a lot of times through that journey um, when I wondered exactly where God was going with this plan. I remember driving across the country as this like broke college student in my like junky 97 Volkswagen Jetta, packed to the rafters with all my possessions, 
driving to Ontario and it's just saying to God, man, I, like, I hope you know what you're doing because I have no idea what I'm doing. I grew up hearing Jeremiah 29 verse 11 at every graduation and birthday party. You, can't, you know the one, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I grew up knowing that God had a plan for my life, but his plan just didn't always seem to make a lot of sense. And sometimes I think that's what the disciples were feeling after Jesus had been crucified. Their Messiah was dead. Now what? They must have been asking God, is this really part of the plan? I don't know where you're going with this, God. What are we supposed to do now? What kind of hokey plan is this? They were confused and they were scared. And that's where we pick up with them in our text today. So would you turn with me to John 20, verses 19 to 23. Let's just read the word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the forgiveness of sins from anyone, it is withheld. Let's pray. Lord, uh, pray that you would uh, meet us here. Meet us here in our doubts and in our fears. As we gather here in this room, pray that you would show yourself to us, that your words of peace would come to us, that we would have ears to hear it, and that we would go out commissioned to live for you, Lord. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us, that your spirit would come in this room. Amen. So it's the evening of the first Easter Sunday. The disciples, they know that Jesus' grave is empty, but they don't really understand what's happening yet. Peter and John have gone to the tomb. They've seen it empty. They've seen the cloth lying there. They know something has happened, but they're not 100% sure what that is. Mary Magdalene has actually seen Jesus. She's talked to him, and she's told everyone that he's alive. Despite all this, the disciples are still afraid. They're hiding with the doors locked because they're afraid of the Jews. And can you blame them? Their leader has been executed by order of the Jews without a fair trial, and who knows if they'll be next. This Following this Messiah has not turned out the way they had thought it would go. A week earlier, they entered Jerusalem side by side with Jesus on Palm Sunday, and then the crowds were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and now those chants of Hosanna turned to shouts of crucify him. They had gone from being paraded down Main Street, Jerusalem, to hiding behind locked doors, fearing for their lives. And don't we find ourselves in that place sometime that the highs of life are followed by these lows, particularly in our spiritual lives? We'll go to a worship event, we'll go to on a mission trip, we'll go to a conference, or, or maybe we'll just attend church. And we feel like we're riding high, like God is winning in our lives, that our faith could not be stronger. We say like Peter did, Jesus, I would lay down my life for you, only to deny him by the next day. 
We boldly throw our hands in the air in worship when we're surrounded by fellow believers. But evade the topic of faith with a coworker the very next day. We go to some impoverished nation to serve on a missions trip to further the kingdom. And then we come home and get back to looking after number one. You see, when we're having that mountaintop experience, when we're riding high, the enemy is just waiting for it to be over so he can discourage us. He's waiting outside the door to cut us down, take the wind out of our sails. And to the disciples, it must have felt like the enemy had won, that they had somehow failed, that maybe they were wrong about this Jesus guy. They were at the lowest of lows. They were lost. They were confused. They were scared. And then they hear these words. Peace be with you. Suddenly Jesus is standing in their midst. We don't know, did he come through the door? Did he come through the wall? Did he just appear? Did he teleport in? We don't actually know. Our text doesn't actually tell us how Jesus got there. Only that he came and stood among them. And we commonly assume that he just appeared out of thin air. But it's also possible that because he had a physical body that he just came through the door, that he unlocked it, just as the Lord unlocks the prison doors in the book of Acts for his disciples. In any case, the point is that he is there. He's alive. And he greets his friends with these words, peace be with you. I love this about Jesus. There's no great flash of light. There's not pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come blazing down Jerusalem with chariots of fire. He just quietly enters a locked room, on a somber night, in the darkest hour, when all seems lost and his people are crippled by fear. He reassures them with this simple phrase, peace be with you. Isn't that so like Jesus? He meets his disciples where they are, in their discouragement, in their gloom, at their rock bottom. That's when Jesus chooses to show up. After the mountaintop experience is over, in the valley of the shadow of death, as the psalmist writes, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Have you experienced Jesus like that in your lifetime? I know that for me, it's, it's when I'm at my lows. It's when I'm at the lowest point when things are looking dark that the voice of God quietly breaks through and says, peace be with you. To carry on with the psalm, it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. And that's what the disciples are experiencing at this moment. They're hiding in a city that's controlled and run by their enemies. They are literally surrounded by the presence of their enemies. And then Jesus enters the room, and they are glad. Their cup overflows. Jesus shows them the scars on his hands and on his side, proof that he really is alive. He's not an apparition. He's not a ghost. He is flesh and blood, truly alive. Now, that's a very important detail that we often overlook or we take for granted. Um, But, in fact, one of the earliest heresies that the early church had to face was this idea that Jesus was just an apparition, that he was just an image, that he only appeared to die, and that he only appeared to be human. The Apostle John writes about this later in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Um, and he preaches against this heresy. In fact, he writes in 1 John 4, verse 2, that by by this you will know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. See, the fact that Jesus came in the flesh and has risen in the flesh is a fundamental doctrine of the Bible. Whether or not someone believes in this fact is how we are to determine whether or not someone or something is from God. In these days, skeptics would have us believe that these sightings of Jesus after his death were merely mass hallucinations, that with the doors locked and the candles lit and in their emotional state, the oxygen got low and the disciples just imagined the whole thing. Even the disciple Thomas, who wasn't there on this particular occasion, didn't believe the other disciples when they told him about this. See, the fact that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, it's a really hard thing to believe. It sounds a little nuts. But it's the truth. This wasn't a ghost. This wasn't a hallucination. Jesus is truly alive in the flesh. and He has the scars to prove it. In Luke's account of this story, uh, Luke actually goes to extra lengths to point out that Jesus really was truly physically there. He probably spends an extra three or four verses on it saying that they touched Jesus' hands and side, that they watched him eat food. If he was a ghost, that food would have just fallen right through him, right? That he could actually eat it. How awesome must have that been for the disciples? They watched him die, and now he's standing among them, showing them his scars. Now, our passage says that the disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. Now, I'm not an expert in Greek, but I feel like the translators probably could have used a stronger word than glad to describe their reaction. They must have been ecstatic. Imagine their faith must have gone from like a 2 out of 10 to a solid 11 in like a couple seconds flat. It must have felt so good to see Jesus alive. But Jesus doesn't just show up to make us feel better. He isn't only there to comfort them, comfort us. He's there to commission them. Jesus repeats this line, peace be with you. But it takes on a new meaning this time. The first time he said it, he was comforting his his disciples, bringing peace. This time, it's a farewell. He's sending them with peace into the world. Verse 21 says this, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. See, that's the thing about Jesus. He offers us encouragement, but he calls us to action as well. Oftentimes, we as Christians, we see God as our personal therapist, that we talk to him, we bring our problems to him. He encourages us, he fixes us, sends us back out there. But that's it. He's just there to comfort our pain. And he does. That's not only it. We go to church. We encounter Jesus. We're encouraged. Our faith is strengthened. And then we go home and we ride out our faith until next week Sunday. But as we see in our text, an encounter with the living God not only builds up our faith, but it demands action. Jesus doesn't just raise us up so we can go back to living for ourselves, carrying on as we once were. He raises raises us up in order that we would serve him. See, Jesus restores the disciples' faith by appearing to them, but he follows that up with a challenge. He opens with, peace be with you, and he follows that with, I am sending you. 
Author N.T. Wright puts it this way, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't leave us as passive, helpless spectators. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and commissioned to go and make new creation happen in the world. That is precisely what is happening here with the disciples. They're comforted, lifted up, and encouraged in order to be sent out into the world. And in this passage, there are three particular ways that the disciples, and we also, are sent. First, we're sent as the Father sent the Son. Second, we're sent in the Spirit. And third, we're sent with authority. So let's break that down, starting with the first Sent as the Father sent the Son. Let's read verse 21 again. Jesus says, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That is heavy. That's, this isn't just something that Jesus is politely asking. It's not just a recommendation that's his, that he's making. Jesus is telling the disciples their life purpose. Jesus was also sent for a purpose purpose which ultimately led to his death on a cross. So the disciples have just watched Jesus get executed a couple days before, and now he's telling them that he's going to send them just as he was sent. He's showing them his scars. They know that being sent leaves a mark. This calling and this commission, this, it's a costly one. It demands everything. It may even demand your life. That's the gravity of being sent by Jesus. This weighty commission doesn't just come from anyone. It comes from the authority of God the Father. Just as Jesus was sent by God the Father, so we are sent. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. In fact, he says he is one with the Father. This command could not come from any higher up. So we understand that it's a weighty thing to be sent. But for what purpose are we sent? John 3.16 and 17 I think you guys might know it. Probably the most recognizable passage in the Bible. It spells out Jesus' purpose for coming, and by extension, our purpose for being sent. And it goes like this. Feel free to read along with me from memory if you want. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Salvation in Christ. God sent his son to save the world, not to condemn it. Now, if we're sent as Jesus is sent, then we're sent to proclaim this message, and it's our duty to proclaim this truth, salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to back it up a minute. I want to look at this word, sent. So, as I was preparing uh, this week, I did a bunch of emailing, I did a little texting back and forth with uh, the, some of the pastors, and this little text bubble kept popping up at the end of every outgoing message, and it said, sent. Message sent. For us, sending something is as easy as a click of a button. Most of us text every day, we send emails frequently. Uh, we can order on Amazon with a few keystrokes, we can have something sent to our door. You can even send someone to the other side of the world. You just hop on a plane and you can be anywhere in the world in one day. It's so easy for us to send things in our age that I think we forget what that really meant for Jesus' disciples. 
In Jesus' day, there was no cell phones. There was no social media. There was no Amazon. If you wanted to send a message or an object to someone far away, you needed a messenger. Now, I imagine it would go something like this. You would spend some time with this messenger. You would give them the message. You'd probably get them to repeat it back to you so that you knew that they had remembered the message. And uh, then you send them off. And they would journey, sometimes for days, maybe even weeks, to bring that message to the recipient. Now, when I'm working, I'm a construction person. I don't have to remember messages. I have to remember measurements. And sometimes the thing I measure is over here, but I have to go cut the thing I need over there. So I get my number over here, and as I walk back, I repeat that number. I repeat that message in my brain until I get back over there because I have a terrible memory. And I imagine some of these messengers would be doing the same thing. Be, as they're going, repeating that message, reminding themselves what it is. And sometimes, when these messengers would finally get to their destination, the recipient didn't like the message that they heard. And, well, you've heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, that came from somewhere. Um, so a messenger, being a messenger, being a sent one, in Jesus' day, you had to be trustworthy, trustworthy to remember the message. You had to be dedicated, dedicated enough to make this long journey. And you had to be willing to take a bit of a risk on delivering the message. So how well do we know the message that we're called to carry? How far are we willing to go to deliver that message? How much are we willing to risk for the sake of the gospel. Being sent is a tough job. It's a risky job. And it's even tougher and riskier when it's the very word of God that we're delivering. And it's a job that we cannot do on our own. So Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. He sends us with the help of his spirit. Verse 22 of our passage says this, And when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this might seem a little bit odd because we know that the Spirit was not really given until Pentecost, quite some time later. So what's Jesus really saying here? Some interpret this to mean that this, Jesus gave them the Spirit here, but it wasn't really fully awakened or poured out until Pentecost. But another way of looking at it is that he is referring to Pentecost, and that, commanding, that he's commanding them to receive it when it should come. In any case, no matter how you interpret it, if you read the rest of the book of John, you'll probably notice that the Holy Spirit has not been very active. There's not a lot of evidence in the, of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. Uh, the next chapter, after seeing Jesus alive, after being commissioned by him, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the disciples go with him. They all just go back to work. They go back to life as it was before Jesus had ever called them in the first place. And how often are we like that? We hear a message at church, we give our lives to Christ, we go to some other event where we're commissioned, we feel inspired to make changes in our life, we leave those places eager to go out and spread the gospel. But instead, we just go back to our old life. How often does the Spirit convict us to do or say things or change certain behaviors and like the disciples, we just go fishing. 
Of course, a little while later, the Holy Spirit is fully poured out. On the day of Pentecost, this reluctant group of sent ones catch fire, and they convert 3,000 people on the very first day. Do you see the difference that the Holy Spirit makes? It turns a bunch of scared fishermen into fiery evangelists. It multiplies 12 believers to over 3,000 in a single day. And when needed, it gives the disciples words to speak, words that aren't even in their own language, in order to spread the gospel of salvation to many people. And this is the same Holy Spirit that resides in us. When Peter preached on Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is a gift for all who are forgiven in Jesus Christ. So when was the last time that the Spirit got a hold of you and you preached the sermon and 3,000 people came to Christ? Yeah, it's been a little while for me, too. <laughs> um, it's not likely that many of us have experienced that strong of an outpouring of the Spirit. But don't let that discourage you. Not every day can be Pentecost. Not everyone can be Peter. Most commonly, the Spirit resides in the heart of the believer. It prompts us and it nudges us and it convicts us in the way that we should go. Regardless of how charismatically the Spirit manifests, manifests itself in your life, he gifts you with the things you need to accomplish the mission that Jesus has sent you on. You might not have the gift of tongues, but you might have other gifts. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul describes many different spiritual gifts, many different ways that the Spirit manifests itself through many different people. He talks about gifts of teaching and healing and helping, administrating, etc. You might never experience that speaking in tongues, leading thousands to Christ type of spiritual outpouring. But the Holy Spirit might just use you to bring physical or emotional healing to others. The Holy Spirit might give you a knack for helping or serving your church. Maybe you're a greeter or you serve coffee. Or Up at Promontory, we've got this great people who, group of people whose spiritual gift it is to unpack church out of a box every Sunday, do our service, and then pack it all back up again. That's their gift, their helpers. The Holy Spirit might give you the gift of administrating. I've had to work with a few of you this week, sending you messages and emails. And I don't know, if you spend your whole day emailing people and organizing and scheduling, I'm just as impressed with you as, you are, as I am with Peter. That's a, that's a big job. You might not be one for preaching. You might not be one for public speaking. But maybe you're really good at one-on-one -on -one mentoring and discipling. Maybe you just thrive in that coffee shop, one-on-one -on -one conversation type of setting. You see, the Spirit gifts us and enables us in unique and powerful ways. If you're a believer here, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You are not sent into the world alone. You are sent with a Spirit who empowers and equips you with the tools you need for the job. And man, are we ever going to need the Spirit as we uh, try to tackle and live out the very last verse of our text today. Let's read it. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What's that about? Is Jesus really giving his disciples the power to forgive sins? What's going on here? 
We're sent with authority, but this, maybe this seems a little excessive. At least that's my reaction to the text at first. Well, we know the rest of Scripture that the authority, we know by the rest of Scripture that the authority to judge and forgive someone's sins ultimately belongs to God. So let's be clear on that. God is not granting the disciples the ability to grant someone passage to heaven or condemn them to hell. That is God's job and God's job only. So what does this mean then? Let's look at a verse that kind of seems to say the same thing. A couple of times in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That kind of, maybe that language sounds a little similar to our passage and Let's just look at it a little closer. So one of the times that Jesus says this, he's specifically talking about the context of church discipline. So are you guys getting fired up about this? Judgment and church discipline, like all the good, warm, feels stuff, good stuff that we love to talk about at church. Um, but in this context, talking about church discipline, the disciples are actually being called to keep other believers accountable when they sin. There's a specific way about addressing or way to go about addressing sin or someone who is sinning. Matthew 18, 15 to 18 lays it out like this. Read it with me. Step one, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If he does not listen, step two, take one or two others along with you that you may, that every charge may be established by the evidence two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, step three, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So you see, when Jesus is talking about the authority to forgive and withhold sins, to bind and loose things in heaven, He's not giving the disciples the authority to withhold salvation from people they don't like. Is that me? Um, (laughs) He's giving them the authority, more like the responsibility, to help others discern the sin in their life and lead them to repentance. To offer forgiveness when they do repent. So what does that look look, look like for us today? Well, we primarily, we offer forgiveness simply by preaching or sharing the gospel of forgiveness. We proclaim that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins and that everyone who believes in him is forgiven. We preach that forgiveness is a free gift. Or let's take this example of uh, getting baptized. It's pretty fresh in my memory. Um, When we want to get baptized, we go to our church leaders. We say, hey, I want to get baptized. I believe in Jesus Christ. And they talk to us. They have this conversation with us. They help us discern if this is the step that we're ready to take. And ultimately, they agree to baptize us. Or they might suggest that we need to wait a little while or figure a few things out first. But when they baptize, they're giving their affirmation that to the best of their knowledge and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they believe that the person being baptized has truly been forgiven of their sins through faith in Jesus. They are given the authority to discern that. That's the type of authority our passage is talking about. It's the authority to shepherd the flock, to keep each other accountable, and to call each other to repentance should the need arise. Remember when we read uh, John three seventeen earlier that 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through him. The gospel of forgiveness is just that, good news that our sins are forgiven. Romans 8.1 says this, there is no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, we are called to preach this by his authority with the help of the Holy Spirit. So the second half of John 20, verse 23, talks about withholding forgiveness. So if people are being forgiven by hearing and receiving the gospel, then when we stop preaching the gospel, forgiveness is being withheld. In other words, when we keep Jesus to ourselves, we are withholding forgiveness from a world that desperately needs it. And I'm preaching to myself here. I'm so bad at this, you guys. It may surprise you, but it's actually easier for me to get up here and talk in front of a big group of believers than it is for me to share the gospel with a single unbelieving coworker. Isn't that crazy? I don't know why, it's just so easy to avoid that topic of faith. You're afraid of how people are going to react. It's, you're kind of thinking, well, if I share this, am I, is this going to make things awkward with this person? I still have to work with them. Sometimes I'm just crippled by fear. Just like the disciples in that room. I need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to break through the barriers, to utter the words, peace be with you, to show us the scars and remind us of what he endured for us, to breathe new life into our fear-filled souls and fill them instead with the breath of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus to send us, knowing that it's not by our own power or our own ability that we're sent, but it's by the authority of the Lord through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus when it's time to call our wayward brother to account. We need Jesus when it's time to share what we believe with a coworker or a friend or even a stranger. When it comes right down to it, we really just need Jesus. I want to invite the band back up as uh, we bring things to a close here. So brothers and sisters in Christ, it's my desire for us that as we leave this place declaring, that we would leave this place declaring the promises of God. I pray that as we move forward from Easter and we move outward into the world that we would not go back to our old lives. I pray that as we have been gathered here in this room, just as the disciples were gathered, that we would have heard the words of Christ spoken to us. Peace be with you. I hope that these words, peace be with you, would bring you comfort if it's been a hard week. Your Lord is alive. Your Lord is with you. And I hope that these words, peace be with you, would bring you comfort, or would ring true for you in the week ahead, that that peace of God would go with you and indwell you and empower you to boldly live for him. Church of God, you are, not be, you are being sent out just as the Father sent the Son. You are not alone. The Lord goes with you in the form of his Holy Spirit, and he gives you the authority to declare salvation for all who would believe. My friends, as you go, may you be comforted and commissioned by the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Let's pray. 
Father, we are gathered here um, in this place. Maybe we're fearful. Maybe we're feeling empowered, Lord, but we would, we pray that you would go with us into our week. You would give us the words to say to a world that's hurting. Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to declare salvation, to declare forgiveness to, to people that so desperately need it. Lord, we pray that we would not grow cold, that we would not go back to everyday life, to the, to the regular routine of things, but that we would be emboldened to live for you, to share your word. Lord, we thank you that your spirit goes with us. In your name we pray. Amen.